Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. Hope you're doing well, feeling happy, healthy, and safe. Here's a question for you. Do you know what it takes to be best in glass? That's right, I said glass, not class. When the pandemic started, I found myself stuck at home, sitting in front of the TV more than usual, and I discovered a show called Blown Away on Netflix. It's a competition show, kind of like Survivor or Hell's Kitchen, but here, the contestants make beautiful, hand-blown glass pieces, with the winner earning a career-boosting residency at the Corning Museum of Glass in Corning, New York. Now, I got hooked on it because it felt different from other competition shows. It was about what the artists were creating, not how much drama they could create between them. Now, if you think glassblowing isn't exciting, think again. Hundreds upon hundreds of glassblowers from around the globe wanted to be right here, right now. We're back at North America's largest hotshot to watch 10 exceptional artists push themselves to creative extremes. I'm excited to have two guests from Blown Away, seasons one and two with me. Catherine Gray is a Canadian glass artist and professor of art at California State University in San Bernardino. Catherine returns as a judge on season two of Blown Away, and that's on Netflix right now. Alexander Rosenberg is an artist who works in glass. He's an educator and writer based between Philadelphia and New York. In season one of Blown Away, he came in third overall. This year, he returns as a judge. I interviewed Catherine and Alexander separately, and then just for ease of listening, I put it together in one long interview, and that's what you'll be hearing today. I started off by asking Catherine why a show about glass blowing has struck such a nerve with people. That's a really good question. Um, I mean, I've worked in public before and I've taught and given lots of demonstrations in front of groups of people. So I know there's interest out there, but you know, I'm always in front of like a really, you know, a glass audience, you know, people who are already into glass. So I wasn't sure, but you know, it is a really fascinating thing to watch. And, you know, years ago I was a resident at Harborfront Center. That's when I first really started getting used to working in front of people because, you know, the public just kind of streams in and watches you work. And I kind of got an inkling that other people are also sort of fascinated with the process, you know, maybe because it is so unlike anything that they're familiar with. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of drama inherent in the process, you know, the heat, the, the risks, the, you know, the chance that something's going to explode or break or you're going to get burned. You know, there's lots of things that could go wrong as, as well as a lot of things that can go right. Hundreds upon hundreds of glassblowers from around the globe wanted to be right here, right now. We're back at North America's largest hotshot to watch 10 exceptional artists push themselves to creative extremes. I think when people kind of hear about a show about glass blowing, it sounds incredibly niche, you know, like uh, we were we were joking uh, in another interview. It's kind of like, uh, you know, underwater basket weaving, the competitive TV show. Um, <laughs> but I think uh, I think it's a couple of things. I mean, I think, number one, um, the, the people behind this production did a wonderful job of really kind of showcasing the process and, and the material, just kind of what it does. Like not, um, you know, when I, when I think about reality TV, sometimes I think about a lot of like manufactured interpersonal drama and, and stuff like that. And, and I think Glass has enough drama on its own, you know? So, so this, this production was, was very smart in that respect, I think. Um, and then I think also separate from the people involved, like, Glass is just 
a wonderfully engaging process. Um, it's something, there's this kind of performativity inherent to the, to the process. Like if people are blowing glass, there's gonna be a crowd of people standing around watching, you know? Um, and I think it's just, I think people in the community have been saying for a long time, um, you know, we should make a, there should be a show of this. I, you know, I certainly would watch it or I certainly would have watched it. So. Well, you see it quite often on the show where people work for what seems like hours to create something and then one little flick of the wrist and all of a sudden all that work is just gone. And I think that's part of where the drama comes from because the drama isn't inherent in the way that the contestants treat one another. It's not like um, one of those like Hell's Kitchen style shows where everyone's backstabbing or survivor or something like that. Uh, it's a much different kind of feel. And I think that to me, uh, it, it has that to me works well, because it has that sense of competition. But it also has a sense of drama, but there's no nastiness to it. And that was really refreshing. Super refreshing. And to be honest, you know, when they first asked me about you know, participating in the show, I didn't want to have anything to do with it if they were going to be promoting that, you know, mm -hmm. sort of that villainy backstabbing kind of competition because the glass community is too small <laughs> to, to support that. <laughs> you know, we, as you can tell, you know, we all work together, you know, yep. we have assistance and, you know, help each other all the time. And so once you have somebody in the mix, that's kind of a bad egg like that, it can be really disruptive. So I was really appreciative that they wanted to, you know, keep all of that drama in the, you know, just into the, in the process. Um, you know, I was still a little nervous after we wrapped up filming, you know, they have like tons and tons of footage, you know, they can spin it lots of different ways, but so I was super relieved that they really stayed true to their word. And I think they did a fabulous job. You're listening to my interview with Catherine Gray and Alexander Rosenberg judges on blown away. Watch it now on Netflix. You're there to create, not sabotage the people around you. And I think that's really what made it work for me. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I agree a hundred percent. I think also it's something you know, there might have been this kind of unintentional sweet spot for uh, for for viewing during a global pandemic. You know, when there when there's chaos everywhere, it's nice to see people just kind of focusing on on the task at hand and yeah. you know getting along. Maybe when people are starved for uh, social contact themselves, but um, I think it's a reflection of just what um, you know what the community, by and large, is. You know, it's it's a pretty as you said, kind of a small community, people are pretty, um, you know, they're excited for you to be a part of it for the mm -hmm. most part. And, uh, you know, I, um, I think it's also related to the fact that it's, it's a team sport, you know, this isn't a thing where you just kind of are a big jerk and then you can go be by yourself. Like you, you do have to a little bit kind of accommodate that there are other people and that there's kind of communicating with other people and there's a culture that goes with that. Um, you know, we're early on in glass, glass working. You kind of learn that if you're the person sitting at the bench and something goes wrong, it's your, it's your fault. Like it's a little, it's not really right to blame the people helping you. You know, it's like you're the, cap, you're the captain of the ship or something like that, you know, or the highest ranking officer, whatever it is, there's some responsibility. And I think um, for, for those people that, that kind of ethical, situation registers on, I think it would probably carry over into other aspects of the kind of 
um, of the community. If they can survive our fiery competition, they'll win a life-changing prize package that will establish them around the globe as best in glass. So you have one shot and that's it. For every challenge, we'll bring in a special guest evaluator. No. I think one of the things that came out uh, for me anyway, of watching Blown Away was a new respect for things that I think of as everyday objects that are made out of glass. And so that vase that I've just always had in the closet, you know, and I only pull out once every now and again when I buy flowers, uh, actually is a labor of love for someone on the on the other end, on the other end, the the manufacturing side. And I do think the show gives you an appreciation for that of these in some cases, everyday objects that are actually beautiful pieces of art that we should perhaps appreciate a little bit more. Yes, I think that is like an amazing kind of side effect of the show actually is just, um, uh, yeah, opening people's eyes to like, you know, the handmade aspect of some things. Now, a lot of glass that people have in their homes is probably machine made, but somebody did design, you know, the, the you know, the, created the initial design and, you know, the molds that would make those things, um, you know, so there is a lot of thought in all of that process, but then certainly people have a lot of handmade glass, you know, there are a lot of mm -hmm. vases and tableware and things like that, that are handmade, you know, maybe more on a production line, but, um, you know, those are highly skilled people that are making those things. And, you know, now that sort of mystery behind the curtain is revealed a little bit more. So let's talk a little bit about the history of glass blowing. It began really in the Renaissance in Italy. Um, what? Uh, that's my research. You you look incredulous. You look like that's not right. <laughs> it actually the first glass blowers were Romans, um, and you know there had been glass in use um, before that for about three thousand years. Egyptians started making glass, but not blowing it. Um, Romans somehow figured out blowing glass there's a few um you know apocryphal stories about how that came about um and that was definitely like one high point in glass making history um you know but then there's you know after the fall of the roman empire there's the dark ages the middle ages and really it started to blossom again during the renaissance in venice yeah and it was quite competitive uh i'm told that uh glass secrets and formulas and make to make glass uh, were uh, a secret and the penalty was death if you stole someone's uh, secret. Tell me a little bit about that. That's the same information I have. Um, <laughs> and that if, uh, you know, if a glassmaker escaped from Venice to maybe like strike out on their own somewhere else in Europe, they also had like, you know, a death warrant out on them. <laughs> but at the same time, glassmakers could marry into nobility. You know, they were very highly respected in Venetian society. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it was a big commodity at that point. You know, Venice was a big center of trade to both the East and the West and glassmaking was one of their commodities. And so they really wanted to keep that, you know, knowledge and technology uh, secret. You're listening to my interview with Catherine Gray and Alexander Rosenberg. They are judges on a show called Blown Away. And who knew glass blowing could be this much fun? All right, glass blowers, your time starts now. We talk about everyday things being art. Um, I like your Wonder Bread series where you take something that we're all very familiar with and then elevate it kind of in the same sense, a little different than Andy Warhol took, you know, everyday objects that we all know and, and presented them slightly differently. And all of a sudden uh, we realize that the everyday can be art in that way as well. Oh, well, thanks. That's a nice observation. Yeah, I was, 
trying to kind of capitalize on the idea of wonder, you know, and like being in awe of things in the world and kind of, you know, there's some wordplay obviously with Wonder Bread, but I've always loved the sort of graphic identity. And so I was trying to kind of make it my own. It was a little bit of an effort to try to sell out early in my career, but it didn't go that well. <laughs> the New Yorker described you the quiet minimalist in a man bun. What was your reaction to that? You know, I mean, it was nice that they mentioned me. <laughs> um, you know, I don't, I don't think I really, uh, I mean, I, I actually think, I, I see kind of why they're saying minimalist, but it doesn't really go with my kind of understanding of it in terms of like fine arts, you know, like, and, and, and I think glass, I think they're talking about it because I like using clear glass and a lot of people um, bring that up to me, like, why don't you like color? And, and the thing is, clear glass or reflective glass is really complicated, you know, it, visually. Um, I remember, like, I had a, 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 maybe a former student, actually, who liked working in silver, the material silver a lot. And they're like, well, silver is not a color. It's actually all the colors because it's reflecting everything else in the world. And, um, and clear glass is like that, too. There's reflection and there's also this kind of distortion. I mean, I think it's quite complicated and and you know at the end of the day I, I just have like um a much more interest in, a much greater interest in in kind of uh form and and kind of uh wall thickness and all these other kind of qualities that you get to see with with clear stuff than uh kind of surface and pattern and i think you, you can see some kind of uh you know those two sometimes kind of opposing interests in different people's work with glass the one other thing that i'll say is like it's kind of special for there to be a solid that you can see through. Like it's not that common to find in the world. And I think from kind of a, a sculptural perspective, the ability to see the inside and the outside of something at the same time, it's really, it's kind of unique. And there's a lot of opportunity there that I think you can see in, in, in my work or in, in kind of my approach to the challenges on the show, this, this idea of kind of looking into the world and, and kind of um, observing things it's, it's, it's uh, it's there for me. So um so I guess that's kind of, you know, I don't think I'm that much of a minimalist, but that's okay. And uh, I no longer have like a, enough hair to put it up in, in a tiny little thing on top. Um, but, you know, I, like I said, no, no such thing as bad press. I'm starting to learn. You're listening to my interview with Catherine Gray and Alexander Rosenberg, judges from the television show Blown Away, now on Netflix. So tell me a little bit about uh, being there and shooting the show. The the place that you're in this this it's not a factory. I guess it probably was at one point a factory, but now it's been turned into a set. Uh, it must be blazingly hot because there's a lot of fire and brimstone. It looks to me uh, at each of these stations. Uh, it's enormous. And uh, these things take a long time to make. You can't really rush this. So tell me a little bit about what it's like to shoot an episode. Uh, each episode takes about three days. So the first day is, you know, when we give them the challenge and then yeah. they have the process time where they're working in the studio. So, and that tends to range for like four to six hours. So, and that's real time that they have that amount of time. Um, and then the next day they, you know, everything goes into the oven and has to cool. So they don't actually get those things to, you know, kind of finish and work on until the following day. And so that day they have to do what's called cold working, which is kind of the final finishing I was mentioning. And then they shoot some of the interviews where the glass makers are kind of talking to the camera. And then the third day we have the gallery viewing and the kind of presentation and the elimination. 
Describe to me what it's like to be there in the hot room where the set is. It looks to me, it's huge. It looks like an old factory that's been retrofit uh, into not only a television station, but they have all these stations where you can blow glass in and it looks like fire and brimstone spitting out of these kilns. Uh, it must be blazingly hot. You were a competitor last year. This year, you're an evaluator. Tell me a little bit about what it is like to be working under that kind of pressure and having it filmed at the same time. Well, I have to say um, that that studio is is unique, the, the studio in, in Ontario, um, in that it has uh, 10 different, we call them glory holes. They're like reheat furnaces that, that get the glass hot again <laughs> um, in the same space. And so each one of those little furnaces is shooting out about 2100 degrees Fahrenheit. I'm sorry, I don't know what that is in Celsius because I live in it's a backwards, lot. backwards American uh, weights and measures land. But um, yeah, so you have you have 10 of those. It's just, it's really efficiently gets the space hot. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I think obviously that's something that um, has, has been, uh, you know, adjusted and, and perfected as as the series kind of kind of goes on so i think maybe when we first stepped in there it was probably the heart hottest that it ever was and then you know maybe that there there have been efforts to to make cooler but it's always hot um you know working in the summer like i i work in the shop kind of year round in the summer i definitely am not as productive as i am in the winter months you know down where i live in in pennsylvania and um I have to say, yeah, a shop like that with those those ten reheat furnaces going, it was no match for Canadian winter. You know, I felt like I was in the in the tropics doing manual labor. You know, battling the clock, eleven minutes, and the sweltering heat. How much dramatic license does the show take? What does it get right about glass blowing? It gets right. Um... You know, the, the variety of things that you can make out of blown glass, you know, because there's so many contestants with so many uh, different skill sets and ideas, you get a sense of kind of the range of things that you can do with the material. Um, I think it gets right sort of the quirkiness of a lot of glass makers, you know, like not everybody really gets into blowing glass, but then people that do like you know, they really get into it. So they're sometimes kind of, um, you know, have something unusual about them that makes them really want to work in a situation like that. Mm -hmm. um, I think it gets right, even the camaraderie and the friendly competition. Um, you know, I think we all um, enjoy uh, seeing what each other accomplishes in the show and, and also in real life. How much of it is uh, art and how much of it is science? Because when I see the these things being created there's there's an element of both in there obviously the idea the germ of the idea the artistic idea is there but there has to be a, a huge background in uh, or required in knowing the materials and how various things react to one another i you know i think it's cool that people who work with glass end up with this kind of experiential scientific knowledge like we might end up knowing some of the same things as like a material scientist or like a physicist um but probably wouldn't be able to say it in the same way <laughs> as they would and i'm sure there are you know many many holes i know it's not the same thing but there are things that we learn about like um you know like uh coefficients of expansion is is kind of a, a terminology that gets that's thrown around that um that at least in the way that we 
uh, use it talks about like the ways material, the way materials contract and expand as they're heating and cooling, you know, because just because it's important to us, like that's the thing that makes our stuff not break, you know, understanding those, those, those things. So um, I think, it, I think it's exciting. And I think it's kind of like, um, you know, to me, it's one of the cool things about this type of learning that glass, that glass learning is, I, I guess I'm an educator too. So it's something that I think about where you can kind of learn these disciplines in a different way than you would if you were specifically learning the discipline. You mentioned that the third day is the day where the judges evaluate. And uh, one of the lines that has echoed in my head from, I don't remember what episode it was, uh, but the line was something like, this looks like something you'd find in an airport gift shop. <laughs> and I, I mean, it's devastating. It was a devastating moment. Um, is that the, the the worst thing you can say to a glassblower? <laughs> oh, I don't know if it is. I kind of, I don't know if I totally regret saying that because I feel like, you know, there's a lot of people that make their living making work that goes into airport gift yep. shops. But I just thought in that forum, you know, here you are on this stage in this show, you know, you are working alongside all of these other great glass artists. And I felt like that artist in that particular instance maybe didn't aim high enough in sort of what they were doing with their work. But um, yeah, I realize it, it sounds a little snobby, but um, I hope it was okay in the context of the show. It's TV and I remember it, you know, months <laughs> right. later, so. <laughs> yes, so I know it's been excerpted, excerpted in some of the trailers and stuff. So it has come back to haunt me a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, it must be uh, different in some level. Your 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 experience level is different coming in as someone who's actually been on the ground doing this for a very long time. But does it make you a little uh, easier on people because you know how difficult it is? Or are you harder on people simply because you know what's possible? You know, I, I think um, that's a that's kind of a hard question I think I mean in some ways it's a little bit of both you know because there are some things that I think might appear to be problems uh kind of to the untrained eye that I'm kind of used to or that I know are kind of part of the vocabulary of material you know that might not be they might not look as weird to me you know mm -hmm. as somebody who kind of knows what this stuff does but on the on the flip side um yeah you know like I I work hard just like the people there do, you know, so it's kind of thing, you know, when it comes down to stuff like, oh, I, you know, I ran out of time or, you know, oh, I accidentally, you know, fell or something like that, you know, these are the same kind of accidents that happened to everybody. So I guess it just gives me kind of a, a, a realistic metric, you know, to, to grade the quality from, I, I don't think I'm like particularly um, hard, like in, in a critical sense. And, and I mean, to me, in the most kind of generous way. The purpose of critique is to kind of reconcile the intention of the person making it with the experience of people looking at it, you know? Um, so at the end of the day, it's kind of like, well, did you kind of achieve what you tried to do? And we kind of figure out yes or no. When you're designing a piece and actually physically making a piece, um, it looks physically grueling. It's not just the idea that you have to come up with the idea and figure out how to execute it. It actually looks physically very difficult. What is the hardest part of actually doing it, of, of the physical aspect of making a, a piece of glass? 
I mean, it is very physical. And especially when you start making things on a larger scale, mm. um, you know, then you just, you know, have to have sort of the physical strength to kind of lift and muscle it around if you need to. But, you know, when you have like a larger mass of glass, there's a, just a lot more heat kind of radi radiating off of it. Mm -hmm. So you're just that much hotter at the same time. So it really does become like an endurance test sometimes. You're listening to my interview with Catherine Gray and Alexander Rosenberg from Blown Away on Netflix. Can you describe to me the heartbreak that must follow working on a piece for hours? It's hot. The glory hole is burning up. It's, it's a, a tense situation and a wrong flick of the wrist and the piece falls apart. Can you describe to me what that's like? It's, I mean, when it's really surprising, it is kind of heartbreaking. You know, when there's, I can remember um, working in a studio at an institution where I used to teach that was one wall was just kind of open to the elements there would sometimes be a moment where like a single snowflake would kind of flutter down and land on this really delicate thing and, and it's gone. Or, you know, like a piece of a sweat, a drop yeah. of sweat falls down onto it and ends it. Um, but, you know, I think at the end of the day, most of the kind of failure comes from, you know, um, I guess like controllable human error, you know? So there is this huge disappointment then you're like, oh, I knew, you know, I knew I shouldn't have touched it with that cold thing. Like there's a little voice, you know, that says, don't do this. And at the end of the day, it's like, if we get used to listening to the voice, you know, the voice says, get back in the, get back in the glory hole, like reheat sooner. You know, like if you listen to the voice, the stuff doesn't happen as much. The average person, I don't think knows that much about it. We have an image of what it might be. What do you hope people take away? I think it's just exciting for, for me and, and for much of the community when like the general public starts having a deeper interest in this kind of very granular thing that you do, you know? Right. Um, and I think anybody that gets narrowed into a particular profession would have like the number one thing that the public will say, if, 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 you know, if you're at a dinner party and you say, Oh, I do blank, you know, the public will say this person or this thing, you know? So for glass, that's probably Del Chihuly or do you make bombs? Those are the two, you know, the two things. And I think, the gift of this kind of becoming a part of the zeitgeist or, or you know, uh, public consciousness is to have a bigger discussion than that, you know, to, to know, a, a, have a wider breadth of examples of, of what's possible and what the material can do. And I think that's good for everybody. It's kind of enriching to, um, you know, general knowledge. And I think it's exciting for people in the field. Um, and I think also it's, uh, it's also just like helping us, you know, it gives, I think it's people are selling work more and I know studios have an uptick in people taking classes and, and renting time and stuff like that. So I think it's all, I think it's all good. That was my interview with Catherine Gray and Alexander Rosenberg. They are judges on the Netflix show, Blown Away. Check it out. I think you'll like it. Next up, we meet Rebecca Reed, author of Rude, Stop Being Nice and Start Being Bold. Now, a segment on Good Morning Britain gave you the idea for the book. What happened? 
So um, I actually did a show recently and I discussed it and they played the clip back and I haven't seen the clip since I've, I've never actually watched it. Um, luckily, turns out I haven't slandered anyone. It is as it is in the book. So uh, we're having a debate. Uh, Piers Morgan is there. I don't know if you guys have him mm-hmm. in Canada, but he's quite an aggressive, fun, but aggressive man. Um, and this other guest was talking over me and I really lost my temper, which is sort of unlike me. And I started going shh like that. And then I said, um, you can keep talking uh, or you can listen to me, but I'm going to keep talking. So you may as well let me have my say or something to those words. Um, And it wasn't a particularly particularly elegant moment, but it was the first time in my life I'd said, you're not going to talk over me. And it was a bit of a watershed moment. And did you realize it at the moment when it was happening? Did you think a light bulb's going off here? This is this is something new for me. I was thinking the Daily Mail are going to be really cross with me. Um, and I could see myself in the monitor. Um, so It's really weird. You can see your face everywhere, you know. Mm. Um, and I could see myself going like that. And I, I, I was consciously thinking this is not going to go down well. People are not going to like this. Now, you really take aim at the culture of nice in the book. How did your life change when you embraced your assertiveness? So the big point that I make about being nice is that I think actively choosing to do something kind to somebody is brilliant. Mm-hmm. But being nice just by being passive, like just letting it happen, that's not an active choice. It's not a character trait. It's just a sort of lack of action. Um, so all that all that I've really changed is that I now make an assessment. Am I letting you go ahead of me in this queue because I've got time and you look stressed? Or am I letting you go ahead of me in this queue because I can't say anything because I'm being weak? Um, and through doing that, I found that I pick my battles more. I'm less angry. I'm better able to regulate my emotions. But I also don't find myself resenting people. I don't find myself sort of quietly thinking bad things because somebody didn't know that I was going to be offended. So it's made me a much more even-tempered person, as well as I think it's made me more successful, more assertive and more listened to. Do you wish that you had had that shush moment earlier on? Were you ready for that shush moment? So I think maybe your shush. So I was 26 when my shush, when my shush moment happened. And I think maybe you have to be 26 or thereabouts. I think much younger than 26, you uh, possibly aren't fully equipped for mm. the, what happens afterwards. Um, and certainly in my research for the book, I found that the older women are, the more likely they are to be assertive and to feel able to assert themselves. Um, so I think it's a, it's definitely, if you're in your mid-20s, that might be the moment. I really hope that it could apply to women, to girls in their teens. But I think, um, <laughs> for me, I needed a bit of life experience first. Now, you write... Rudeness is the opposite of ladylike. In fact, rude throws a martini in the face of ladylike and sleeps with its husband. Uh, Is this a challenge to women who are trapped in nice? I think so. I mean, I think the word ladylike is quite a hot topic because I think people get very attached to it because it comes with a kind of security. I think people think if they're wearing a a petticoated skirt and they're cooking a roast for their husband, then they're safe. Um, And what I'm trying to say is you can still do all those things while still being assertive and having things your way. Um, And again, like everything to do with feminism, this really is ultimately about choice. Mm -hmm. It's about speaking out when you want to, not being quiet because you feel you have to. Now, is the power of being rude about being rude or not being afraid of being rude? So ultimately, I think what it's really about, and I think I realised this like 
after I had finished the book. It's about divesting yourself of the fear of other people's perception. So very few of the things that I, that I condone in this book are actually rude. What they are is somebody might behind your back say, oh my God, she was so rude, or people might think it. Now, that's not because you're actually being rude. That's because they have been conditioned to expect women to behave in a certain way. So really, it's about freeing yourself of those expectations. Now, how are the rules different for men and women? <sighs> well, first of all, I would say that it very much depends on what kind of man you are. Mm -hmm. um, I think while I know no one likes hearing this, it is, if you are a straight white man, you do have a very different situation from, for instance, if you are an African-American or African-Canadian man, that's a very different situation. But if, we, if we're talking about straight white men in this situation, generally speaking, um, men are perceived as assertive when women are perceived as aggressive. Um, and for instance, I did some research about interrupting um, and about 35% of all workplace interruptions are done, sorry, sorry, all 35% of, of workplace interruptions on the, on the Supreme Court are done by men to women, despite the fact that women are an infinitesimal number of the Supreme Court, about 20%. Um, so even at the top levels, women are interrupted more in the workplace. Uh, women are perceived as aggressive rather than assertive. Uh, women who ask for pay rises are less likely to get those pay rises and then to be treated, and then more likely to be treated badly in the workplace and seen as ungrateful for asking. So there are statistics in all walks of life about how the world treats you worse for being rude if you're a woman than you are than, than if you're a man, um, which is unfortunate because, you know, I love men. I don't want to bash them, but unfortunately, it kind of is just the truth. You're listening to my interview with Rebecca Reed, author of Rude, Stop Being Nice and Start Being Bold. It's available wherever fine books are sold. Well, it starts early. You discuss in the book the idea of boys will be boys. So describe the way that girls and boys are treated differently, for instance, in the playground. So I used to be a nanny, so I spent a lot of time sitting on the edge of the playground um, and I had a very faulty phone battery, so I had to do a lot of watching kids <laughs> rather than uh, being on Twitter. Um, and I found that we're, that girls were, were far, far, far more like... By the way, I did also do more research. This isn't just based on me sitting on the playground. Um, but generally, the, both my experience, anecdotal data and the real data backs up. Girls are more likely to be punished for being hyperactive, for running around, for fighting... Boys are more likely to be expected to do those things. And in reality, children across the board need to do those things. Children need to climb high things, run around, and they need to be able to push each other over and learn that that's wrong and be um, told off in a controlled, safe way. All of these are very normal human child behaviours, not boy behaviours. Mm. Um, and yet somewhere along the line, we decided that boys are hyperactive and have to behave badly and girls are sweet and can't. And, you know, that old um, what little boys made of slugs and tail, slugs and right. snails and puppy dogs tails. I mean, it really does go back as far as that. And it's mean because it vilifies boys as well. Not all boys are hyperactive nightmares and not all girls are sweet little angels. And that's OK. Well, let's talk about some of the words that are used to describe uh, people like Anna Wintour, Taylor Swift, Meghan Markle, that are never used to describe men. Yeah, I mean, those are some particularly great examples. Uh, ball breaker, um, bossy, uh, diva. Those are some of the absolute favorites. Um, I think when you talk about Taylor Swift, it's fascinating the way that the conversation is still around her romantic life and her breakups despite the fact that she just wrote a whole album that wasn't even about any real mm -hmm. breakups she's experienced uh, Meghan Markle um real real favorite uh over here well 
a divisive character over here, but again, regarded to be a sort of temptress and heartbreaker who's split apart the royal family rather than just a woman who fell in love and uh, decided to take some space from her in-laws, as many women have done. Uh, but yeah, we do have a very long list of very specific languages that we own, sorry, words that we only use for women. Um, like bridezilla is another one that I go into. I really hate bridezilla. Mm. Uh, wanting a nice wedding doesn't mean you're a bad person. <laughs> <laughs> well, bossy is another word uh, mm -hmm. that you discuss in the book. Uh, tell me a little bit about how that can be damaging for young girls to hear, uh, as you describe in the book. So I was called bossy from childhood, not by like bad people mm -hmm. who wanted to continue the patriarchy, by nice people who loved me, but who didn't, who hadn't maybe grasped that calling a child bossy when you are demonstrating leadership skills and confidence and enthusiasm is a really strange thing to do. It's a punishing language for a quality that we shouldn't want to punish. Mm. Um, and I think a majority of the women I know were called bossy as children and, and that there was a shame attached to that. It made them feel that they had done something wrong or bad. Um, and then we question why 25 years later they don't want to apply for a promotion at work. Um, and, you know, we've sowed those seeds really early. Um, and it's the, the sad thing is that those those seeds tend to come from people who love you and want you to do well. And yet they make these small mistakes that really undermine your ability to do well. The book is called Rude. Uh, in, in it, you, just, you describe positive rudeness and negative rudeness. What is positive rudeness? So the easiest way to explain it is that if you're in a restaurant and there's something wrong with your order, mm -hmm. um, uh, the wrong kind of rudeness would be to like click at a waiter, never date somebody who clicks at waiters, um, and then to bring a server over and give them a long list of the reasons why it's wrong in an angry tone and then be like, now fix it. The right kind of rudeness is to say, hi, do you have a second? I ordered this and actually I've got this. Or um, I was hoping this would be served at quite a hot temperature and it's very cold. Would you be able to either replace it or reheat it? And a big part of rudeness isn't just complaining. It's suggesting a solution. Um, and I think that's the, that's the difference between just being a whiner and being a winner. I mean, I've gone very cheesy there, but I do think that is a big difference. People don't just want to hear you complain. They want to hear a suggestion. And nine times out of 10, people want to put a situation right for you, but you need to help them understand how to do that. That was my interview with Rebecca Reed, author of Rude, Stop Being Nice and Start Being Bold. You can find that book wherever fine books are sold. I also want to thank my two previous guests, Catherine Gray and Alexander Rosenberg. Uh, they are judges on the television show Blown Away. I don't know if you can tell, but I like that show quite a bit. And you can find it on Netflix. During this competition, you're going to get tired, frustrated, Ugh. glass will shatter. Oh, God. Swap. Swap. There's only 30 minutes left. Go. Oh, my God. I'm running out of time. My biggest thanks, though, of course, and as always, goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll talk again soon.